Please note, this episode contains discussions of violence towards women. In August this year, Jake Davison, a 22-year-old from Plymouth, went on a shooting rampage that left six dead, including his mother and himself. In the aftermath, it emerged that Davison had been a member of incel forums online. He's not the first mass shooter to have links to online groups espousing extreme hatred of women. Since Elliot Roger killed six people in California in 2014, self-proclaimed involuntary celibates have carried out multiple mass murders, mostly in North America. A deeply misogynist, a male supremacist, violent extremist movement of men who hate women. Definitely we see a lot of rage being expressed online, a lot of um, victimhood and a lot of shame around their real inability to have sexual relationships with women. In most people, this materializes in severe cases of depression and increased risk of suicide. But for a small minority, these views start to express themselves in violent way. So, what's driving this extreme misogyny? Is incel ideology on the rise? And are big tech companies to blame for allowing these groups to thrive online? A kind of expression of what incel culture sort of teaches young men, the way it preys off a sense of alienation and despair and gives them this incredibly cruel and violent way of supposedly taking the power back for themselves. In the UK, I'd say we're talking about uh, perhaps 10,000 people um, who are specifically members of or actively involved in these forums in the US and more broadly, perhaps in the hundreds of thousands. This isn't the first incident there where the insult ideology has cropped up. And so I think it's something that needs to be taken much more seriously by government and social media firms. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, is our digital economy breeding misogyny? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Debbie Ging, Associate Professor in the School of Communications at Dublin City University. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Aisha. Thank you for having me on. No, thanks so much for being with us. I think it's going to be a really rich conversation. We've got lots to get through. So as we heard in the intro, Jake Davison, the the man who shot five people dead in Plymouth, spent some time in incel communities online. Would you be able to just start off by explaining what incel means for folks who don't know um, and what the incel communities kind of really center around? So as you explained already, incel stands for involuntary celibate. So these are men who don't get the sex to which they feel they're entitled. The reason for this in their understanding of things is because they are effectively losers in the genetic lottery. So they see themselves as disadvantaged by genetics, by biology, in terms of their physique. And because they believe in ideas derived from evolutionary psychology, they believe that they're their fate is predetermined, biologically uh, fixed. And so it's a very fatalistic community. So within the incel community, you kind of have two options. One is to try and improve your situation by engaging in, in kind of bodily, physical improvements, going to the gym and various other attempts to to improve with the hope of what they call ascending, which is 
ascending to to better masculinity status where you might have some chance of finding a mate or resigning yourself to your fate of never finding anyone, never having sex with anyone. And those incels would describe themselves as black-pilled, so they're the kind of darkest, most nihilistic, self-loathing faction of the incel community. Wow, that's a really great description. I feel like I've read up quite a lot on this, but I had never heard any of that stuff around the kind of evolutionary science behind it and this idea of, yeah, being able to kind of ascend through a different category. It's it's really fascinating. Even though incel communities are almost entirely male, I think I'm right in saying, from what I've read, the term incel was actually coined by a disabled woman. So it, it feels quite important to to maybe briefly talk a little bit about the history of the term. Absolutely, that's right. So in its original sense, it was intended to be gender neutral and to describe, obviously, a much more benign subculture of people who were simply celibate uh, and didn't want to be celibate, but it wasn't characterised by any kind of uh, anti-woman sentiment or anti-feminism. It wasn't connected to the men's rights movement. And over time, it has effectively become hijacked by men who are very closely affiliated with the broader manosphere and the online men's rights movement to the almost exclusion of women. And what is the manosphere? You use that word there, if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. So the manosphere is the kind of broader structure. It's a a loose online network of anti-woman or anti-feminist formations, for want of a better word. So it contains lots of different subgroups of which incels are one. But you also have within that network men's rights activists or MRAs who would be the kind of more organized end of the manosphere. So large organizations which are very organized, very influential, like A Voice for Men, the American organization. You have also uh, pickup artists or PUAs, some of whom are also activists, people like Rouge V., but some of whom are also just entrepreneurs who are engaging in the seduction industry as a means of making money. Um, So it's, it's a very diverse kind of complex network that's always kind of shifting and there's lots of really interesting kind of overlaps and differences within those subgroups. You also have MGTOs, uh, men going their own way. So these men are heavily invested in this idea of male sovereignty. They want to disassociate entirely with Western women. So they have quite a different agenda, obviously, than pickup artists who are you know, invested in the idea of hooking up with women. You have traditional conservatives who would be Christian, um, National Rifle Association supporters, Trump voters. So that's much more America specific. And then you have incels who espouse much more kind of techno-libertarian values of free speech and who would mostly be atheists. So you can see already that there's a lot of overlaps, but there's also a lot of um, quite significant ideological differences within the various factions of the manosphere. But they're, they're kind of all unified by this kind of centralizing concept of the red pill. Mm, I want to pick up on that point you were just mentioning around the the ideology there is what I'm hearing that there there is a kind of overlap between intel communities and other communities espousing things like white supremacy, transphobia, anti-Semitism, etc. But it's not a kind of complete overlap, as it were. It's it's a bit more complicated than that. Yes, exactly. So while the groups of the manosphere 
are primarily concerned with gender-related issues, with issues of sexual entitlement and with anti-feminism and women. Obviously, the alt-right and the far-right are more concerned with issues of race, but there is a very considerable overlap between these various formations online. So male supremacism is deeply embedded in the ideologies of the alt-right and the far-right, for example. And the key link here, really, to white supremacism and the alt-right hinges on this idea of great replacement theory, which is the idea that white men, and this is the kind of key that white men and by extension Western civilization are under threat from immigration and as well from feminism and from other any other activists who kind of threaten white male privilege or patriarchy. So that's the kind of uh, the key overlapping ideological hub, if you like. But they also share with the right this kind of preoccupation with genetics and evolutionary psychology. So there's a very strong crossover there. And certainly most, if not all, alt-right groups share common values with MRAs when it comes to gender and feminism. So, for example, the uh, white supremacist group, the Proud Boys, its founder, Gavin McInnes, is famous for or infamous for saying that feminism is cancer, for example. So they all have a very similar stance on feminism. But I think it's important to point out as well that the overlap between the Manosphere and the right isn't just ideological, that it's also strategic in the sense that gender politics has become a kind of a key battleground for the right. So misogynistic language and attacks on gender ideology have become increasingly evident, as we know, in mainstream political discourse, exemplified by Trump's use of the media and Twitter to to kind of humiliate and harass um, women. So gender politics Um, has become, not just in the US, but far beyond, has become a kind of proxy, if you like, to criticise liberalism, to criticise the European Union, to contest deplatforming, to contest what they call cancel culture, to attack trans people, etc. So it's kind of used strategically to almost stand in for cancel culture in many ways. So there's if you like, there's ideological crossover, but there's also a strategic crossover going on there as well. Mm, so that was going to be, I guess, my next question. Would you say that these communities are, you know, made up of or comprise a politically active organization? Are they politically active groups or more like, you know, groups of people coming together and having discussions or a bit of both? It's very difficult to say for a number of reasons because they're quite geographically dynamic because they're dynamic across platforms, because they're anonymous, because also they tend to coalesce around particular events and issues, and then they might disband and kind of coalesce around another one. So it's a very kind of amorphous, dynamic set of formations or assemblages that work in this way. And yes, there are organized groups within the manosphere. So there's the, you know, the kind of organized men's rights activists like A Voice for Men, who would be very aligned to to right-wing thinking. And you have groups like the Proud Boys. But incels, for example, would tend not really to be politically aligned. It would be difficult to call them, I think, activists because they're not really active or politically active in that sense. They kind of operate at the level of, of discourse and exist in, in quite an isolated, kind of closed off culture. 
So there's a lot of very different things going on, I guess, at the same time, and it's very difficult to track exactly where the allegiances occur. But it's quite it's quite discursive in terms of, you know, they can happen around a hashtag. Uh, Gamergate brought a lot of them together. These kinds of flashpoints events will bring a lot of them together. But this is not, by and large, what you might call kind of organised collective politics. It's a kind of connective politics that's very dynamic and very difficult to pin down. Mm, which is, of course, part of the strength of it um, and perhaps Absolutely. perhaps the danger as well. I mean, I want to go on to talk a little bit more about the kind of digitalization of all of this online versus offline. But I'm just kind of fascinated as to how you ended up kind of getting into studying this world, Debbie, and, and what it is exactly that you look at in your research around this, because the kind of description that you just gave of all the different pieces was just so fascinating. And I'm kind of like, how do you know all this stuff? Well, I started looking at pre-internet men's rights movements and I began to kind of track their migration online and in the first kind of iteration of that in terms of their migration onto the internet and and web 1.0 there wasn't a huge difference in the sense that they were just more organized they were more networked their ideas could spread more quickly and they could kind of hybridize and cross fertilize with one another through, you know, linking on websites. But it was with the beginning of social media with web 2.0 that you saw this really dramatic transformation in terms of not just how they communicated, but in terms of their rhetorical strategies, in terms of their concerns, all of these things shifted massively. And this is really part of the the broader culture wars and a greater shift, I suppose, from doing politics at the level of the kind of material, at the level of the political, to doing politics at a much more kind of cultural level. But also social media, the affordances of social media were enabling lots of different kinds of modes of communication and expression, the culture became very meme-based. It became very based on personal narratives of suffering. And the Manosphere is not alone in this. We've seen much more progressive, positive cases of what Zizi Papacharisi refers to as effective publics that are based on narratives and personal storytelling and kind of connecting through shared personal experience. But we see in the manosphere, uh, how this can work to kind of galvanize toxic ideas. They also, in their kind of modus operandi, became much more misogynistic, much more overtly misogynistic. We saw lots more of kind of personalized attacks on individual women, orchestrated pylons, very kind of technologically sophisticated campaigns to attack and intimidate individual women. So this is this is kind of a far cry from dressing up as Batman or Superman to protest for father's rights or signing petitions about child custody or, or divorce. There's this real shift from this kind of human rights-based organized politics to very much a, a politics of emotion, a politics of personal pain, a politics of revenge that was no longer really interested in child custody 
or the feminization of education, but rather in the issues around the question of sexual entitlement. And so I found this really interesting. And as a a media scholar, you know, as an internet scholar, it's obviously fascinating to see how the social and the economic were conspiring with the technological affordances of social media culture to create these very new iterations of men's rights. Mm, I, I really, I'm really fascinated by this idea of kind of affective communities or communities that kind of coalesce around, I guess, a shared feeling or experience, as you were saying. In kind of my day job, I spend a lot of time thinking about how that those kind of communities might be positively created within kind of social movements as a way of moving towards justice. And I guess a question that I would have around that idea of as you were saying, the more negative side of that or a politics of shared emotion, which is really based around revenge and entitlement. My question would be, to what extent is this something which is a, like, you know, a really big concern that we should really be paying more attention to than we are? And B, is this something that just exists online or, or has it spread and, and found a, a foothold in our offline lives as well? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really tricky question. Is this relationship between the offline and the online, which are effectively indistinguishable now because they're so kind of co-constitutive of one another. But I suppose we have to look at how technology works in conjunction with social, economic and cultural factors. So in many ways, it's a kind of a perfect storm in that you have this incredibly for want of a better word, technologically creative set of platforms that can be used for all kinds of different purposes that have very, very effective affordances in terms of amplifying ideas, but also in terms of orchestrating kind of coordinated campaigns against people, using sock puppets, using bots, hijacking hashtags, all these ways that you can amplify and intimidate etc. But at the same time, we had for almost 20 years, the dominance of post-feminism within culture, not as a movement, but as a kind of a, a set of cultural ideas that were telling society, telling men as well, that kind of women had it all. And, you know, there was a certain constructions of women, I think, in post-feminist culture that have been quite damaging and really problematic, and that have, I suppose, fueled a lot of the discontent of the manosphere in this kind of strident declaration of girl power and women can have anything, etc. At the same time, the mainstream media uh, has been telling men for a couple of decades now that masculinity is in crisis. And so I think if your world is largely mediated, it's very easy to have quite a distorted view of what women are or, or of what gender relations are. Um, because of this. And then if you add to this, um, you know, the shifts that have happened in the economy, I think all of this creates kind of perfect storm of socioeconomic, cultural and technological factors to facilitate what we're seeing. I don't think you can look at one of them in isolation. But if you look at the economic developments that, that have happened in the last 20 years, there's been a steady shift away from permanent stable work towards digital service platforms, the, you know, which link customers directly with service providing uh, workers, in other words, the gig economy. So 
this is a very precarious disposable labour market where we see employees being replaced by uh, independent contractors who are paid by the job, paid by the gig. And we've seen the disappearance of benefits such as sick and holiday pay, uh, insurance, all of the other legal protections that we would have considered normal 20 years ago. We've also seen the steady decline of workers' unions and effectively the erosion of the social safety net. So if you look at all of these factors combined with the inflation of property prices, the decline in the value of wages, it really means that a huge number of men cannot afford to buy property, uh, won't have any kind of you know, kind of steady career. And this is very different to what their fathers would have expected or their grandfathers would have expected as the norm and to what we might consider or what has been traditionally considered as the kind of hallmarks of traditional masculinity, which are, you know, employment status, property ownership. Their fathers and grandfathers' masculine identities were effectively built around those themes. And now a lot of these men find themselves uh, not in education, unemployed, without any kind of prospect of, of ever owning their own home. So they're also dispossessed of key signifiers of masculinity. So Michael Kimmel has talked about this and how, how these men experience a sense of aggrieved entitlement because they have no chance of acceding to things that would have been considered just normal kind of rites of passage of masculinity before them. The problem, of course, is that rather than acknowledging that all of this is attributable to to the neoliberal economy, the dominant response has been, obviously it's much easier, has been to construct this kind of sense of disentitlement as attributable to their sex, as attributable to feminism going too far, women taking their jobs, people of colour taking their jobs, this kind of sense of the the disenfranchised white uh, male. But, you know, that has also been bolstered. That has also been kind of galvanised by the kind of masculinity in crisis and, you know, in inverted commas, end of men narratives or man session narratives that we've been hearing in mainstream media. So all of this has kind of compounded a rhetoric of white male disenfranchisement. And I think we have to look at that as well as a key contributory factor in what we're looking at now. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. We, you know, we, we we talk a lot on the podcast about the ways in which, I guess, the people in charge, culture, what, whatever it is, create scapegoats for for the fallout of economic policy. As you mentioned there, you know, if it's not migrants taking jobs, it's, you know, women withholding sex from men. And it's a story that we know well. I guess the thing that jumped out at me, what you were saying there around these kind of, uh, this narrative in the media around, I can't remember exactly how you termed it, but this idea of a crisis of masculinity, I think it was. How does this sit alongside the discourse around toxic masculinity and conversations around male mental health and things like this? Do you see those things as interlinked at all? Or is that a kind of a different thing which we need to talk about separate from this? I mean, toxic masculinity obviously doesn't refer to the fact that masculinity isn't of itself toxic. It's it's obviously, uh, you know, kind of socioeconomic factors that engender this sense of disentitlement. But the fact that there's a sense of disentitlement is because that masculinity, you know, that feels that it's entitled, that type of manhood, those kinds of norms whereby men are brought up to believe they're entitled to 
property or to a job and to that kind of stability because it makes them marriageable is a form of toxic masculinity. It's a form of white male entitlement. So it's really, it's not that that's not problematic. Of course, it's problematic, but it's just by way of explanation as to where this sense of kind of aggrievement comes from is because that it's precisely because they have been raised and because it's still so much in the culture that those those are things to which men are, are entitled as well as a wife or you know sex or women's bodies uh, etc so yes it's hugely problematic and this is what we mean by toxic masculinity Mm, So I suppose maybe another way to think about it then might be that, yes, we do need to have a conversation and an intervention around toxic masculinity and the way that it impacts men in terms of unlearning that and healing some of the trauma of that. And also we need to be having this conversation about how that toxic masculinity leads to certain behaviours like the ones that we've been discussing and the impact of that concurrently. Absolutely. And in many ways, this is where it gets really complex because in many ways, even though there is a lot of really quite extreme misogyny on incel forums, for example, there's also a huge amount of self-loathing. There's a lot of talk mm. about depression and suicidal ideation. And what's really interesting often is, is that incels talk about, you know, how violent alpha males are. And they kind of complain, in fact, about how unfair it is that it's, you know, they're always being branded and, and, uh, stereotyped in, in the mainstream media as the threat, as the kind of the threat of violence. Whereas, in fact, you know, they would say that the majority of them aren't violent. And in fact, that uh, it's alpha males, you know, who they refer to as chads who are violent. And, you know, that women are, in fact, attracted to violent men. So this is where it gets really, really complex, especially around this issue of mental health. So, you know, they complain that it's the violent men in society who are successful and who attract the most women. And they refer to this as a kind of dark triad of personality traits in alpha males derived from psychology. And this dark triad of personality traits is not a narcissism combined with Machiavellianism and psychopathy. So they, they maintain that alpha males are effectively psychopaths and disassociate from them. And, you know, in many ways, you're kind of looking at this and well, they're not entirely wrong, especially if your perception of the world is mostly a mediated one. When you look at how much our culture glorifies violent masculinity, glorifies gangsters, glorifies misogynistic porn. And also, if you look at the statistics where, you know, worldwide around 90,000 women are murdered every year by men and 36% of those or around 137 Uh, every day are murdered by a partner or a member of their own family. So, you know, that would indicate that, yes, this violence, this misogyny is predominantly out there in the mainstream. It is really fascinating, as you say, that the incels themselves within the communities do have quite a strong critique of certain forms of masculinity, which, as you say, may be shared beyond that community. It's a really complex issue. You mentioned violence there, and I wanted to touch upon that because in the intro, you know, we heard about men who've engaged in online intel communities and then gone on to commit acts of violence. Now, obviously, most members of intel communities won't end up doing that, but how might exposure to those ideas online kind of show up in their day-to-day lives and their relationships with others? Perhaps not that at that extreme a level, but how else might we see this? Yeah, I mean, observing the the threads and the conversations within the communities, 
what strikes me and other researchers looking at them is that they don't appear to have a huge amount of contact with the outside world or with people and very, very little contact with women. There was a really interesting thread recently on one of the forums where they, you know, some woman had posted on a different platform that because of uh, lockdown, she hadn't had a hug in 10 weeks. And, you know, somebody posted this within their chat, within their thread, and they went to town on this because, you know, they were saying things that I haven't had a hug for 20 years. The last time I was hugged was by my mother when I was 10. And the last time I hugged anyone was when I was seven. And it's really, really, really incredibly depressing to read through all of these comments, which, which do seem quite genuine. And it brought home to me how little social contact a lot of members of the incel community have with other human beings. So this kind of raises the question as to, you know, to how impactful they are, because even online, they tend to talk predominantly to one another, rather than to engage in debate or harassment or arguments with actual other people or with women. It's very kind of isolated, closed off, kind of cult-like community. So is the idea then that incels as a kind of organized or not organized online community, as you say, are not engaging as much in these behaviors, you know, you're trolling or you're kind of seeking out um, women online to abuse and harass, or, you know, in real life, they're not, you know, harassing women on the street or, or in the workplaces or things like that. It's, that's not really part of the methodology. So I guess maybe we could understand people like the Plymouth Tutor as kind of outliers rather than at one end of a spectrum. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. I mean, clearly there are members of, you know, incel forums who do do this kind of thing, but it appears that predominantly the purpose of those platforms is for them to communicate with one another and to kind of share in their sense of despair with one another. And yes, in many ways, they are outliers. It is the attacks that we have seen are a form of what's often referred to as stochastic terrorism, in that, you know, it's kind of statistically predictable and that we know it will happen from time to time, but there's nothing that can really enable us to know how and when that will happen. It's random. It's also very spectacular, so it's very frightening. And therefore, there's this kind of huge focus on incel violence. But in many ways, that that kind of detracts from or diverts attention away from the kind of everyday uh, violence, the domestic violence and the murders of women within their own homes at the hands of their own partners or members of their own families, which is obviously, statistically speaking, a much, much greater threat to women. Interesting. I mean, of course, yes, that, that is when you said that I was like, of course, that's true. But it feels like these conversations often kind of eclipse the conversations about the kind of day to day gendered violence that, you know, women face. So thinking about the idea then of of terrorism, is it useful to think about men who commit violence kind of as a result of incel culture as being a member of a terrorist group? You know, is it relevant or important to think about a kind of counter-terrorism approach to extreme misogyny or are we kind of barking up the wrong tree? I think it is and it isn't useful. It's useful in the sense that it is a form of gendered terrorism, but you could also argue that misogyny of all sorts is a form of gendered terrorism. You know, even the, the more kind of daily 
banal forms of misogyny that we encounter. So it depends on how you define terrorism. And I think in the context that you're talking about is, is quite specific and it's to do with, you know, counterterrorism initiatives. The problem with the terrorism and counterterrorism frameworks is that they don't tend to take the broader gender political culture into account. They don't really look at the links between incel ideology and white supremacism and their links to the kind of wider patriarchal culture. And so I think if we lose that socially, politically contextualized analysis, then we're not really understanding the full picture. Yeah, I mean, that certainly makes sense. I think let's go on to talk about the role of the internet here. I mean, obviously, it's it's kind of been a strong thread throughout. And I know this is a, a really big element of your work in this area. You mentioned before kind of the differences, I guess, between this type of cultural formation and that of, you know, Fathers for Justice or, or what they were, whatever they were called kind of years ago and the different style of organizing, not to mention ideology. And I guess I just, I want to know what is important about the internet in this conversation. When you were talking before about, you know, a lot of these men kind of post on forums saying they haven't had lots of contact with the outside world or, you know, they don't interact with people very much. Is there an argument to be made that in some way they're able to kind of join these communities online, which kind of lessens their isolation and there's maybe something good about that? Or is that kind of, is that the very thing that's being manipulated and funneled into this toxic energy? I mean, I guess, yeah, how should we think about the intersection of the rise of the internet and the rise in this particular form of misogyny? Well, I think both of the things that you just said there are true in the sense that, yes, it does offer for disenfranchised men or men who feel that they're disenfranchised, a sense of community and kind of shared pain. But yes, what it also has done is amplified the reach of these groups and their ideas far beyond the actual size of the community. And obviously that's really problematic. I guess I'm always at pains to kind of make distinctions between the incel community and other factions of the manosphere, which are much more politically strategic in terms of how they interact, in terms of how they communicate with women, and in terms of how they put out their message against uh, feminism. Not that, you know, some incels do that, but I think mostly they're they're more concerned with a more kind of um, in-community. It's quite like a cult in many ways, And in that sense, I see it as less kind of politically activist. But the technological affordances of social media play a really significant role in that, in that they're deeply intertwined with the kind of internal psychodynamics of those kinds of extreme groups. Because what's going on a lot of the time is that they're seeking kind of praise and recognition from the peer group. And this is kind of a gamification sometimes with the extremity of the stuff that they post Um, So you get these kind of what they call, you know, a circle jerk. The beliefs are constantly reinforced through this kind of positive feedback loops. So the idea or the meme that is really kind of common or popular in the community, it just gets kind of reiterated and rewarded in this kind of perpetual cycle. And so in this sense, a lot of the ideas become amplified in this way. And, it, you know, they're looking for status. They're looking kind of for recognition. It's it's also sometimes called karma whoring. Um, so that, yeah, the technology is kind of deeply intertwined with, with the psychology, if you like, of the groups. 
but then when we look at the kind of more activist groups as well, you know, obviously the technological affordances work to amplify that misogyny as well, you know, through speed, through anonymity, disinhibition effect, and also the way they use tagging and hyperlinking to spread ideas. So it's really easy then to orchestrate coordinated campaigns against individual women, to publish their details online, um, sock puppet accounts and bots. Um, all of these kinds of affordances are used in a much more kind of concerted way to attack feminism. And I think Gamergate was to a large extent a kind of turning point in this mode of communication and this way of kind of orchestrating a war against women and a war against feminism. Mm, so it isn't entirely then kind of limited to, as you say, the circle jerks. It is also people going out there and running these kind of orchestrated hate campaigns. Just just for listeners who don't know, would you be able to give a super quick explainer on Gamergate um, and what that was? Sure. So Gamergate um, happened in 2014 and it was a, an event that originated in the gaming community when Zoe Quinn, who was a games developer, made a what we might call a serious game called um, Depression Quest, which was, you know, to to help people with um, depression. And, you know, this would be considered by a lot of gamers as as a kind of social justice warrior game, you know, kind of women infiltrating the gamer community with this kind of, you know, woke, politically correct kind of stuff. So, you know, there was obviously some hostility to this and to the fact that the game was reviewed so positively within games gaming journalism. and. She had recently split up from her boyfriend and he wrote a blog post claiming that the reason he was obviously very bitter and resentful about the breakup. And he wrote a blog claiming that the reason why her game had been reviewed so positively was because she'd slept with all of the journalists who positively reviewed her game, uh, which was completely untrue. And it just kind of grew into a pylon against Lots of different women, Anita Sarkeesian, who critiqued, you know, kind of sexist and stereotypical tropes within games. Brianna Wu, there were a number of kind of high profile games developers and games journalists and games critics involved uh, who, who became the targets of this. And the whole thing kind of flared up. The Gamer Gators claimed that it was... Um, it was just a debate about ethics in games journalism because they believed the claims that uh, Zoe Quinn had slept with these games journalists. But in fact, it was a, a platform to attack women and to kind of try and push women out of the gamer space. And it kind of changed the mode of expression online to one of personal vitriol, but also to one that was very kind of technologically creative, in a, for want of a better word, in terms of the kinds of campaigns that you know became used to attack individual women. So Sargon of Arkad, uh, who's a, an alt-right figure in the UK, Carl Benjamin is his real name, also you know vehemently anti-feminist, he made a game, an online game called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian, for example, where the player could actually you know, beat her up and her face became increasingly disfigured. You know, they doxxed her, they attacked her website. So you know, I think most of these women ended up having to change dress because the threats, the death threats and the rape threats were kind of spilling over into real life. They'd been doxxed online and they were getting really quite serious threats. So this had, you know, 
a huge impact in terms of how gender politics was being done and, and, you know, how bitter and vicious and dangerous the tactics had become. And Gamergate, I think, was was a really important turning point in that. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like a catalyst. The thing that's mainly jumping out at me and and what I kind of want to wrap up by talking about is, I guess, the extent to which big tech companies are or aren't clamping down on this. I mean, there's so much of the stuff you're saying. I'm like, how has this been allowed to exist? And, you know, our digital world is obviously dominated by big platforms like Reddit and YouTube and Facebook and whatever, um, who, who have been criticized for not doing more to crack down on this. So, would you say that the way our digital economy is structured kind of encourages these new cultures of misogyny or, or at least kind of create space for them? Well, I mean, of course they say they don't and they have huge corporate social responsibility departments and huge kind of social outreach efforts. They fund research into online hate, uh, etc. But of course, you know, conflict is profitable to them. I mean, that's that's kind of undisputed. And the lack of platform governance, the opaqueness of their content moderation policies and guidelines, their, you know, their slowness to react to, you know, so many events like this. Huge amnesty study in 2018, for example, on the abuse that was experienced by female journalists and, and politicians on Twitter. You know, their findings were absolutely shocking in terms of the levels of, of racist and misogynistic abuse that these women were experiencing. And, you know, they made a number of recommendations to Twitter. Two years later, Twitter had implemented only one of, you know, 10 concrete recommendations that the Amnesty report had made. So the social media platforms are failing to do what the research is telling them they need to do. The content moderation policies, as I say, remain opaque. There's no publicly available data on, you know, appeals on their outcomes. All of this is completely um, invisible to us. But, you know, we should, I guess we shouldn't be surprised if you look at the political economy of big tech, you know, let's face it, their empires are effectively built on online conflict. They're built on political divisiveness. And, you know, increasingly, they're built on colonizing our data. So, you know, we find ourselves now at this kind of position, this juncture where a few billionaires pretty much own everything. And, you know, they're mostly men, if not all men. Actually, a really interesting book in this specific space is uh, Ben Little and Alison Winch's new book, The New Patriarchs of Digital Capitalism, which is a really brilliant analysis of how these kind of celebrity tech oligarchs have managed uh, or stage managed their way into positions of incredible power that they're in. And um, Little and Winch argue in the book that even though, you know, these individuals operate really in very, very different ways to the kind of trolls that we're talking about in the men's right and alt-right movements. You know, they engage in philanthropy, they're like pro-environmentalism, they engage in all kinds of progressive rhetoric, but, you know, they are also effectively working to preserve white male hegemony or the hegemony of white masculinity. So that's really the, the kind of meta structure that's driving all this. And how could technology or how could social media platforms be used differently, I think, is the question we need to be asking. Uh, and how could their ownership be changed and their management structures being changed rather than, you know, how can we force them 
to step up to their responsibilities in terms of platform governance, because that seems to me to be kind of futile. Uh, there's no evidence, there's no sign that they're going to do that. So is what you're saying there then, that while these platforms continue to, to use algorithms, which essentially are about guiding viewers towards the most extreme content, because it's a, an online attention economy, they will always be kind of disincentivized to kind of, you know, tackle online hate properly. And so rather than talking about how we can kind of clamp down and try to make them do that, in fact, what we should be doing is thinking about kind of overhauling the entire, in your words, meta structure of, of what, of the internet, of the platforms, of the digital economy, what might that look like? Is it, are we talking about policy? I, I kind of want to envision this with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, your, your, what you've just said is, is, <laughs> is, is, a, you know, is a pretty good vision. Uh, of oh, good. This. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is a little beyond my kind of remit really um in that i you know my research just really focuses on trying to analyze and make sense of these communities and how they migrate and how they communicate obviously the platforms on which they do this is a really essential part of understanding these dynamics but yeah i mean i think that somehow we need to radically rethink what these platforms are for how we use them how we might you know, create alternative uses for them rather than just tweaking kind of a few things here and there. What that actually entails or how we get there is another, you know, huge story, I guess. And I'd love to hear a podcast from somebody who really has <laughs> an amazing vision of, you know, of, of how to do that. But like, we do have to look at this, you know, the political economy of big tech to really understand I guess what we're up against. Mm. I mean, I think that's a yeah, really great place to leave it, and it's teed us up nicely for a, a part two. Lovely listener, if you are out there and you have the answers to what we should do about this, give us a call. We will uh, we'll do a follow up episode with you. But for now, that is all we have time for on this week's weekly economics podcast. Debbie King, thank you so much for joining me. This was incredibly educational and also quite confusing. I feel like I need to go away and sit in a dark room and think about everything that's just been said. Um, maybe not a dark room. That might be a bit sad. Um, <laughs> if people want to find out more about your work or, or hear more um, where can they go what should they read well I have um, a, just a, a university profile on my uh, Dublin City University website my most recent book with Eugenia Sayapera is on uh, Gender Hate Online but it's a, an edited series so I think that's probably quite a, an interesting starting point into the online misogyny space because both myself and Eugenia's editors try to theorize where this misogyny has, has come from. Yeah, I, maybe this is a silly question, but are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's at Debbie Ging. Okay, great. That is how you can find Debbie on Twitter. Fantastic. That is it for today's Week at Economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.